Chapter 2 of The Star Chamber, An Historical Romance, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, Volume 1, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter 2, Sir Giles Mompasson and His Partner. Madame Bonaventure had already paid considerable sums to the two extortioners, but she resisted their last application, in consequence of which she received a monition from Sir Giles Mompasson, to the effect that, in a month's time, her license would be withdrawn, and her house shut up, unless, in the interim, she consented to make amends to himself and his co-patentee, Sir Francis Mitchell, by payment of the sum in question, together with a further sum equal to it in amount, by way of forfeit, thus doubling the original demand. Our pretty hostess, it would seem, had placed herself in an awkward predicament by her temerity. Sir Giles was not a man to threaten idly, as all who had incurred his displeasure experienced to their cost. His plan was to make himself feared, and he was inexorable as fate itself to a creditor. He ever exacted the full penalty of his bond. In this instance, according to his own notion, he had acted with great leniency, and certainly judged by his customary mode of proceeding in such cases, he had shown some little indulgence. In this line of conduct he had been mainly influenced by his partner, who, not being insensible to the attractions of the fair hostess, hoped to win her favor by a show of consideration. But though Madame Bonaventure was willing enough for her own purposes to encourage Sir Francis Mitchell's attentions, she detested him in her secret heart. She by no means relied upon him for security. A more powerful friend was held in reserve, whom she meant to produce at the last moment, and consequently she was not so ill at ease as she otherwise would have been, though by no means free from misgiving. Sir Giles Mompassant was a terrible enemy and seldom thwarted in his purpose. That she knew. But no man was more keenly alive to his own interest than he, and she persuaded herself he would find it to his advantage not to molest her, in which case she was safe. Of Sir Francis Mitchell she had less apprehension, for though equally mischievous and malevolent with his partner, he was far feebler of purpose, and for the most part governed by him. Besides, she felt she had the amorous knight in her toils, and could easily manage him if he were alone. So the case stood with respect to our pretty hostess, but before proceeding further, it may be well to give a more complete description of the two birds of prey by whom she was threatened with beak and talon. The master spirit of the twain was undoubtedly Sir Giles Mompasson. Quick in conception of villainy, he was equally daring in execution. How he had risen to his present bad eminence no one precisely knew, because with the craft and subtlety that distinguished him, he laid his scheme so deeply and covered his proceedings with so thick a veil that they had been rarely detected. Report, however, spoke of him as a usurer of the vilest kind, who wrung exorbitant interest from needy borrowers, who advanced money to expectant heirs with the intention of plundering them of their inheritance and who resorted to every trick and malpractice permitted by the law to benefit himself at his neighbor's expense. These were bad enough, but even graver accusations were made against him. It was whispered that he had obtained fraudulent possession of deeds and family papers, which had enabled him to wrest estates from their rightful owners, and some did not scruple to add to these charges that he had forged documents to carry out his nefarious designs. Be this as it may, from comparative poverty he speedily rose to wealth, and as his means increased, so his avaricious schemes were multiplied and extended. His earlier days were passed in complete obscurity, 
none but the neediest spendthrift or the most desperate gambler knowing where he dwelt, and every one who found him out in his wretched abode near the Marshalsea had reason to regret his visit. Now he was well enough known by many a courtly prodigal, and his large mansion near Fleet Bridge, it was said of him that he always chose the neighborhood of a prison for his dwelling, was resorted to by the town gallants, whose necessities or extravagance compelled them to obtain supplies at exorbitant interest. Lavish in his expenditure on occasions, Sir Giles was habitually so greedy and penurious that he begrudged every tester he expended. He wished to keep up a show of hospitality without cost, and secretly pleased himself by thinking that he made his guests pay for his entertainments, and even for his establishment. His servants complained of being half-starved, though he was constantly at war with them for their wastefulness and riot. He made, however, a great display of attendance, inasmuch as he had a whole retinue of Mervinans at his beck and call, and these, as before observed, were well paid. They were the crows that followed the vultures, and picked the bones of the spoil when their ravening masters had been fully glutted. In the court of the star chamber, as already remarked, Sir Giles Mompassant found an instrument in every way fitted to his purposes, and he worked it with terrible effect, as will be shown hereafter. With him it was at once a weapon to destroy and a shield to protect. This court claimed a superlative power not only to take causes from other courts and punish them there, but also to punish offenses secondarily when other courts have punished them. Taking advantage of this privilege, when a suit was commenced against him elsewhere, Sir Giles contrived to remove it to the star chamber, where, being omnipotent with clerks and counsel, he was sure of success. The complaints being so warily contrived, the examination so adroitly framed, and the interrogatory so numerous and perplexing, that the defendant, or delinquent as he was indifferently styled, was certain to be baffled and defeated. The sentences of this court, it has been said by one intimately acquainted with its practice, and very favorably inclined to it, strike to the root of men's reputations, and many times of their estates. And again, it was a rule with it that the prosecutor was ever intended to be favored. Knowing this, as well as the high legal authority from whom we have quoted, Sir Giles ever placed himself in the favored position, and, with the aid of this iniquitous tribunal, blasted many a fair reputation, and consigned many a victim of its injustice to the fleet, there to rot till he paid him the utmost of his demands, or paid the debt of nature. In an age less corrupt and venal than that under consideration, such a career could not have long continued without check. But in the time of James I, from the neediness of the monarch himself, and the rapacity of his minions and courtiers and their satellites, each striving to enrich himself no matter how, a thousand abuses, both of right and justice, were tolerated or connived at, crime stalking abroad unpunished. The Star Chamber itself served the king as, in a less degree, it served Sir Giles Mompasson, and others of the same stamp, as a means of increasing his revenue. Half the fines mulcted from those who incurred its censure or its punishments being awarded to the crown. Thus nice inquiries were rarely made, unless a public example was needed, when the wrongdoer was compelled to disgorge his plunder. But this was never done till the pear was fully ripe. Sir Giles, however, had no apprehensions of any such result in his case. Like a sly fox, or rather like a crafty wolf, he was too confident in his own cunning and resources to fear being caught in such a trap. His title was purchased, and he reaped his reward in the consequence it gave him. Sir Francis Mitchell acted likewise, 
and it was about this time that the connection between the worthy pair commenced. Hitherto they had been in opposition, and though very different in temperament and in modes of proceeding, they had one aim in common, and recognizing great merit in each other, coupled with a power of mutual assistance, they agreed to act in concert. Sir Francis was as cautious and timid as Sir Giles was daring and inflexible, the one being the best contriver of a scheme, and the other the fittest to carry it out. Sir Francis trembled at his own devices and their possible consequences. Sir Giles adopted his schemes, if promising, and laughed at the difficulties and dangers that beset them. The one was the head, the other the arm. Not that Sir Giles lacked the ability to weave as subtle a web of deceit as his partner, but each took his line. It saved time. The plan of licensing and inspecting taverns and hotels had originated with Sir Francis, and very profitable it proved, but Sir Giles carried it out much further than his partner had proposed, or thought prudent. And they were as different in personal appearance as in mental qualities and disposition. Mompassong was the dashing eagle, Mitchell the sorry kite. Sir Francis was weakly, emaciated in frame, much given to sensual indulgence, and his body conformed to his timorous organization. His shrunken shanks scarcely sufficed to support him. His back was bent, his eyes blear, his head bald, and his chin, which was continually wagging, clothed in a scanty yellow beard shaped like a stiletto, while his sandy mustachios were curled upward. He was dressed in the extremity of the fashion, and affected the air of a young court gallant. His doublet, hose, and mantle were ever of the gayest and most fanciful hues, and of the richest stuffs. He wore a diamond brooch in his beaver, and sashes tied like garters round his thin legs, which were utterly destitute of calf. Preposterously large roses covered his shoes. His ruff was a treble quadruple dedalion, his gloves richly embroidered, a large crimson satin purse hung from his girdle, and he was scented with powders and pulvilios. This withered coxcomb affected the mincing gait of a young man, and though rather an object of derision than admiration with the fair sex, persuaded himself that they were all captivated by him. The vast sums he so unjustly acquired did not long remain in his possession, but were dispersed in ministering to his follies and depravity. Timorous he was by nature, as we have said, but cruel and unrelenting in proportion to his cowardice, and where an injury could be securely inflicted, or a prostrate foe struck with impunity, he never hesitated for a moment. Sir Giles himself was scarcely so malignant and implacable. A strong contrast to this dastardly debauchee was offered by the bolder villain. Sir Giles Mompassant was a very handsome man, with a striking physiognomy, but dark and sinister in expression. His eyes were black, singularly piercing, and flashed with the fiercest fire when kindled by passion. A finely formed aquiline nose gave a hawk-like character to his face. His hair was coal-black, though he was no longer young, and hung in long ringlets over his neck and shoulders. He wore the handsomely cut beard and mustache subsequently depicted in the portraits of Van Dyck, which suited the stern gravity of his countenance. Rich, though sober in his attire, he always affected a dark color, being generally habited in a doublet of black quilted silk, Venetian hose, and a murray-colored velvet mantle. His conical hat was ornamented with a single black ostrich feather, and he carried a long rapier by his side, in the use of which he was singularly skillful being one of Vincentio Saviolo's best pupils. Sir Giles was a little above the middle height, with a well-proportioned athletic figure, and his strength and address were such 
that there seemed good reason for his boast when he declared, as he often did, that he feared no man living, in fair fight, no, nor any two men. Sir Giles had none of the weaknesses of his partner. Temperate in his living, he had never been known to commit an excess at table. Nor were the blandishments or lures of the fair sex ever successfully spread for him. If his arm was of iron, his heart seemed of adamant, utterly impenetrable by any gentle emotion. It was affirmed and believed that he had never shed a tear. His sole passion appeared to be the accumulation of wealth, unattended by the desire to spend it. He bestowed no gifts. He had no family, no kinsman whom he cared to acknowledge. He stood alone, a hard, grasping man, a bond-slave of Mammon. When it pleased him, Sir Giles Mompesson could play the courtier, and fawn in glows like the rest. A consummate hypocrite, he easily assumed any part he might be called upon to enact, but the tone natural to him was one of insolent domination and bitter raillery. He sneered at all things human and divine, and there was mockery in his laughter, as well as venom in his jests. His manner, however, was not without a certain cold and grave dignity, and he clothed himself, like his purposes, in inscrutable reserve on occasions requiring it. So ominous was his presence that many persons got out of his way, fearing to come in contact with him or give him offense, and the broad walk at Paul's was sometimes cleared as he took his way along it, followed by his band of tipstaves. If this were the case with persons who had no immediate ground of apprehension from him, how much terror his somber figure must have inspired when presented, as it was, to Madame Bonaventure with the aspect of a merciless creditor, armed with full power to enforce his claims, and resolved not to abate a jot of them, will be revealed to the reader in our next chapter. End of chapter 2. Sir Giles Mompesson and his partner.